All right, last week we uh, started a uh, topic, counseling others to respond properly when God makes life hard. And I'll just do a kind of a brief review, at least hopefully enough of a review to get everybody up to speed here. Um, Notice James 1, 2, 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We remember that Job's life certainly got hard, and when his wife said, basically, curse God and die, he said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And how true it is, isn't it, that we often are so quick to accept the blessing and the good, but when the adversity comes, we kind of recoil. And then 2 Timothy 2.3, and remember, this was right before Paul was martyred, right before he was executed. He said, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So we see here the importance of that. And what we're going to talk about is how to respond properly when God makes life hard. And, And last week we had said that The idea of God making life hard doesn't sit well all the time with us. Um, I don't think too many Christians seriously ponder the question. They may think a little bit about it. There's a certain uncomfortableness to it. Uh, We shy away from talking about it. Um, Because as Christians, it's more normal to think, well, we're children of God. We're washed in the blood. Everything is good. And uh, God loves us. He showers us with mercy and grace. and, And the bad stuff comes from somewhere else, right? It just doesn't come from... From God, certainly. Um, And when we think often about the trials and temptations of life, we're we're much more ready to talk about how life is made difficult by the world or by the flesh or by the devil, our sinful choices, maybe our parents, our kids, our enemies. But the thought of God making life hard for those who faithfully follow Him, the thought of God orchestrating pain and difficulty into our lives, is not something that we readily like to meditate upon. And uh, last week we went back and we talked about, for example, thinking of the life of Abraham. Remember that Abraham promised God, or God promised Abraham offspring. Uh, He had to wait 20 years before something actually happened. By that time he had taken matters into his own hand and slept with his handmaid, created Ishmael. Um, Certainly not something God... Abraham felt God was still in control of, or we think of Joseph, who had dreams predicting supremacy over his whole family, but what happened? His brothers beat him up, they sold him into slavery, then he becomes a top dog in Potiphar's household, and he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into the slammer, completely forgotten about for two years, and yet we know that God would eventually use Joseph to liberate both Israel and Egypt from famine. And then Job, of course, is our crowning example, right? He was a man in Job 1.1 whom God called fearless, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And in one day, God allowed uh, Satan to take Job's health, his wealth, his family from him. And I think no one ever had a worse day than Job. I mean, that's just the way it is. So we see that there are times when things go very badly for us, times when life is hard, and we have to ask the inevitable question, does God make life hard for us at times? And the scriptures are clear, there are times when God intentionally, by design, makes life hard for his faithful followers. Um, Now, last week, and I'll just shortly review this, we went over the first um, reason 
uh, we want to uh, develop the main reason why God makes life hard. And we said that God makes life hard because there is no shortcut to the often painful process of sanctification that is necessary to fit us as members of God's family. There are times when we need to be sanctified. And we know that from the moment of salvation, we are positionally justified, but then we start down the long road to progressive sanctification, the process of making us more like Christ, and it's often a painful process. And in this process, God often weaves trials into our lives. He burns away the dross. He uh, puts the refiner's fire to us, the fuller's soap. And this is the norm for every believer, isn't it? This is the norm. And that's why we read in James 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So, and do you ladies need a sheet for today? Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I've got some extra ones here. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what we're going to do is... We're going to study Exodus chapter 5, so I invite you to turn there, because Exodus chapter 5 is probably one of the best places where we can see how we're to handle life when God makes life hard, and how the Israelites did not handle it well. So we learn from this experience, and, um, and I'm going to leave these back here, so if anybody needs, if anybody comes in, can someone just, maybe, I've got a few extras, we can hand out for anybody that may come in. And we're going to look at Exodus chapter 5. Now, let me just review for you. Exodus 5 is a pivotal point in Israel's history. It kind of marks the end of Israel's 400 years of oppression and suffering uh, that they endured as they sojourned in Egypt. And remember that during that time, they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And in Exodus 2.24, we read that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know that God would fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham. He would help them to reside in the promised land. They would become a great nation. All of these things were promised by God. And God gave some instructions to Moses. And let's just read those quickly. Uh, notice in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that we read... No, I should have gotten my bigger Bible. I can hardly see this. Oh, this is terrible. Okay, who's got 16 and 70? Because these numbers are so small, I can't even see them in here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, thank you. It's terrible. The whole thing is... Uh, thank you. Ah, look at this. Nice big words. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, Exodus 3. 16 and 17, so God says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey." 
and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So here we see God's specific instructions to Moses as how he was to approach Pharaoh and what he was to say. And as we move on, we see that things didn't go exactly as planned. Moses and Aaron were the ones that confronted Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 4, look at verses 29 through 31. Exodus 4, 29 through 31. We move ahead. It says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard the Lord, they had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. So we see that they uh, were worshiping God. They were doing what they were supposed to. Um, and let's see, I gotta, I, I'm in the wrong place here. So, anyway, got ahead of myself. So we see that the people are ready to listen to the Lord. They uh, were ready for this covenant to be fulfilled. This was probably a very exciting time in the time of Israel because they were uh, hearing God's promise that they were doing well and that they were going to be delivered. And so, as we go through Exodus 5 now, we're going to see how the Israel's Lights responded when life got hard for them. Um, and we're going to see um, exactly what happened when they thought they were on the brink of being liberated. We'll see what happened. Now you remember what God instructed Moses. So I want to begin again reading verses 1 through 5, Exodus chapter 5. This is in your notes, and this is actually... Um, the first thing we want to know, and again, we want to keep a counseling perspective on this. So in verses 1 through 5, we see that the first question to ask your counselee when God makes life hard is this. Are you responding in obedience to God when things go unexpectedly wrong? Are you responding in obedience to God when things go unexpectedly wrong? Let's read verses 1 through 5. It says, and afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, now listen to what they say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Now I'm sure that was not the answer that, Pharaoh, that Moses and Aaron wanted to hear. They thought things were going to get better. They thought they were right on the edge of being liberated. And Pharaoh's response took them exactly in the other direction. Um, and we have to ask, and again, we talked a little bit about this last time, so we want to just uh, kind of review this. Um, 
I can imagine again that Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh with great confidence. They were ready to confront him with great boldness, with great faith. God was behind them. The people were behind them. What could go wrong, right? But uh, so Moses and Aaron make this triumphalist presentation. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And they probably no doubt expected a quick cataclysmic end to Pharaoh's oppressive grip. But what Pharaoh said, I'm sure shocked them, perhaps traumatized them. It wasn't what they expected. And not only would Pharaoh not let the people go, he said, get back to work. Um, And things had gone unexpectedly wrong. And we can often relate to Moses and Aaron here, can't we? I mean, isn't it amazing how oftentimes we expect certain results in a certain way and we don't get what we expected, right? Uh, It can be through jobs, it can be through health, it can be through any avenue of life. It's not what we thought we were going to get. And we see that this is exactly what happened to Moses. Um, And we realize that a lot of this was brought on by their own disobedience to God. In what ways did Moses and Aaron violate what God had told them? Did anybody pick up on the reading on where we are? And it's hot in here, so I'm turning the air down. It's terrible. Yes, well... Yeah. I know. He told them that they were going to just go out. I forget the word temporary and then come back. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and he just said to let them go. He yeah, he was them. asking for national emancipation, wasn't he? And God didn't say that. God said, let me go for a three days journey. Who was Moses to take with him when he confronted Pharaoh? No, the elders of Israel, right? God said, take the elders of Israel. And who did Moses take? Aaron. That's not what God said. So we see there was all kinds of disobedience here. And we're going to get into this. And we're to ask, am I responding when things happen like this to us? We're to respond by asking, am I in obedience to God and trusting in his sovereign will through the difficult time? Now, sometimes God makes hard because we're, life hard because we're disobedient, right? I mean, he just makes it hard because we're not in obedience. And in the case of Moses, his failure to listen attentively to God led to this failure to obey God. And we were in the midst of talking about what happened. First of all, as we said, he took the wrong delegation. He was commanded in 318 to take the, the elders, and he took Moses, or took Aaron, rather. So he was overconfident. That tells me that I can just go with Aaron. We'll be fine. Secondly, he adopted the wrong approach. He wasn't to be demanding. He was very demanding with Pharaoh. Um, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. That's pretty in your face, isn't it? Uh, That's pretty bold saying to a Pharaoh, isn't it? I mean, you can picture back then that probably didn't go over well. (laughs) You know. He was to say, the Lord God of the Hebrews met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. There's a huge difference between what God said he was to say and what he actually said. And then third, he made the wrong request, didn't he? Instead of a moderate request for three days leave of absence, he demanded complete freedom permanently. God didn't ask him to say that. 
So the point of it is this. There are times when people encounter difficulty because they're in disobedience to God. And, and that can be knowingly or unknowingly. Sometimes we're, we're not even aware of it. But when trouble comes, the idea is the first thing we should do is examine our own lives. Or have someone examine their own lives and say, listen, am I obeying God to the best of my ability in every area of my life? And we have to be able to ask the hard question, is the difficulty coming because God is chastening me as a son or as a daughter? You know, when trouble comes, the first place to look is always inward. It's always inward. Because we have a tendency in our sin nature to look outward. But we should look inward. Now, I realize sometimes disobedience is not the problem. Uh, sometimes things go wrong in our lives because our difficulty is part of God's larger plan, right? There, there are times when God allows things because he's got more in mind. Um, again, look at Moses. Was he disobedient? Yes. Would it have mattered in this case if he had said to Pharaoh exactly what God had told him to say? Probably not. And we know that. Why do we know that? What had God already told Moses about Pharaoh? That he was going to do what to Pharaoh? Harden his heart. God said, look, I'm going to harden his heart. So even if Moses had gone and said exactly what God had said for him to say, the chances are good, it wouldn't have made any difference. But his disobedience didn't help things. And God does not tolerate disobedience, does he? I mean, that's just not something we can trivialize, even though it might not have mattered. Um. And, and then we have to say, what did Moses think would happen when God said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart? You know, it's just like Jeremiah. I really, if there's any guy in the scripture I have the greatest heart for, it's Jeremiah. When God said, you're going to preach, nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to turn, but just keep preaching. You know, and what, what would be our question? Like, you're kidding, right? Like, why would you want me to keep doing this? Because I told you to, which is a good enough reason. Um, and the lesson here for us is that God had warned Moses what would happen, and, and Moses' faith was tested. And the lesson that we get out of this is there is no such thing as an untested faith. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've put faith in him, I guarantee you your faith will be tested. It is impossible to be a Christian and not have your faith tested. It's just impossible. Um, we will encounter various trials, Right? Count it all joy when we fall in, not when, if we may or we might, we will. Um, and in Moses' case, God was not interested in bringing Egypt to repentance. Rather, he hardened them to bring the full force of his anger upon them. And why? Because God had a bigger plan in mind, didn't he? Now, Moses didn't really see that bigger plan. Um, we don't often see it either, do we? But this is where we have to be obedient to the Lord. And the problem with the presumption Moses made was that it was wrong, and in the interim, the Israelites would be more severely treated than ever. I mean, life didn't get easier. And far from being freed, life got harder than it ever got. And sometimes it's no different for us. You know, unexpected difficulties confront us in life, and, and we were talking about four principles that will help us to trust and obey God when things go unexpectedly wrong. And here we're in a counseling setting. You want to make sure you understand this. When you're dealing with yourself or when you're dealing with others and life goes unexpectedly wrong, the first thing, remember that obedience doesn't depend upon your circumstances but upon your character. 
Obedience does not depend upon your circumstances, but upon your character. And I say this because the true measure of our faith is always seen in difficulties and trials, isn't it? And remember what I mentioned last week. When we consider people for elder or deacon, I don't want to know how life is for them when things are going great. I want to see how they handle life's difficulties. I want to see how they handle the worst day of their life. And I want to see if the character is there and the integrity is there. Um, Because it's easy to be great on Sunday morning, isn't it? Put on our Sunday faces and we're all happy. and, And that's a good thing, by the way. But, you know... How is everybody the rest of the way? So um, it's not our circumstances that cause our obedience. It's our character. How do we respond when severe trials come? Remember what Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content, remember, in whatever circumstances I'm in. Our contentment, our joy, our faith is not shaken by circumstances. Um. And then he said when he was under house arrest, Philippians 1.12, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And I said last week that if we could see things from God's perspective, we wouldn't change a thing. If we could see our lives from God's perspective, we wouldn't change a thing. Because God sees what we don't. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't wish for trials. Do you? When God says, hey, who would like a trial? Hey, me! Pick me! I don't think any of us do that, do we? I don't like laying down on the railroad tracks, and I don't look for trouble. Trouble finds me, trust me, more than anybody I know. I just breathe, and trouble comes. Um, But, you know, it's how we handle the trouble that determines our character. And he sees the beginning from the end. And think of it this way. God sees the necessity of our hurts and our disappointments, our trials, our temptations, the tough times, And these are the things that bring glory to God. So we should count it all joy. That's why we count it all joy. Not because we like what we're going through, but because we like what God is accomplishing through it. Now this brings us to new ground right now. So this is the second thing that will help us to trust and obey. And it is secondly that we need to see God in every circumstance. We need to see God in every circumstance. It is human nature when we are going through very difficult things to feel abandoned or forsaken by God, isn't it? I mean, is there anybody who has never felt that way? I wouldn't be in that category. Even Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? But God doesn't forsake us. God is always with us. Jesus himself said what? I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? And we gain the right perspective when we see God in every circumstance. So when things go wrong, don't look laterally, because when you look laterally, all you wind up doing is feeling sorry for yourself, okay? I'm really good at pity parties, you know? When I get focused on me, I get in all kinds of trouble, you know? Like, I'll be studying, and I'll think, you know, nobody really cares what I'm saying. You know, I'm putting in these 20 hours this week, and, and I'm going to go out there, I'm going to preach this message, and then it's just going to be the next week, and, you know, and I, you know, I should have this, and I should, and, you know, when I start feeling sorry for myself, I get myself in all kinds of trouble. And I have those pity parties, and maybe you can relate to this. 
But you know what? When I'm less focused on myself, that's when I have inner peace and contentment. And then God whacks me upside the head and, and says, this is your reasonable service, bucko. So quit your complaining. Yes, Lord, you're right. It's my reasonable service. And it's a joyful one. I remember years ago, <laughs> one of the more funny incidences, when I was pastoring at Lakeside in Clearwater, I came out of my office one day. I had had a particularly hard phone call, and, and I literally came out of my office into the, the secret, there were two secretaries there, and I was literally so beside myself, I was lamenting out loud. Have any of you ever done that? Like, you're just so frustrated, you're, you're lamenting out loud. And I said, you know, this is crazy. I don't even know why I'm doing this. I said, you know what, I just feel like I need to go do something else. And I was just going on and on. And this little Italian secretary got right up to me, nose to nose, this little woman. And she said, you're doing this because you're called of God. And I was like, oh yeah. And I walked back into my office. Quite intimidating, you know, it was uh, quite humorous. I guess she had to be there. But it was fun. Um, it kind of reminded me, yeah, that's exactly right. Sometimes we need to hear that. But we need to see God in every circumstance. We need not to look laterally, but to look vertically and see the situation from God's perspective. Okay, Paul said, look, our circumstances aren't random, are they? So God gives us the grace to handle those circumstances. Number three, what, this is the third thing that will help us to trust and obey God when things go unexpectedly wrong. To realize that unexpected problems often prepare us for future influence. Unexpected problems often prepare us for future influence. Now I'm sure that everybody in this room at one time or another is or has trained for something to do. Um, we face the difficulties of school tests, of maybe trying to play a musical instrument. But the challenges and the hardships we have now are necessary to qualify us for future service, right? If we know we have a hard test and we put in the hard labor of studying for that test, uh, chances are we'll do pretty well. If we don't put in the hard work, then we probably won't do well. It's the same thing with playing an instrument, you know. Um, people want to play an instrument, but if they're not willing to put in the time to be repetitive and go over and over and play and play and play, you're probably not going to get that good. So it's the same thing in our spiritual life. When things go wrong, God often gives us problems to prepare us for future influence. In other words, as we are learning how to bear up under trouble now, we will be more useful in the future. And, and the weight of the present problem builds spiritual muscle for what's going to come later in life. I can tell you that in, God was very merciful to me. The very first church that I pastored in Kinderhook, Michigan was a little rural church, and we had like 60 people. And... Um, and, you know, God was merciful in the fact that he kind of let out the problem slowly to me. You know, I was new in ministry. I was green. Oh, I was so green. I was just, I didn't even know what I didn't know. <laughs> but I'm very thankful. And um, as I began to handle problems in ministry and as I began to get more proficient, um, more and more problems came, of course. And I think back to that time, and, and I can honestly say that I handle problems pretty routinely now that probably would have, 
would have buried me back then. But just through the weight of learning and having to deal with issues and over and over again, you know, you learn uh, how to prepare for future influence. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I can handle things today that probably I wouldn't have handled well back then or perhaps not at all. And maybe the same is in your life. You know, hopefully as you grow, you're able to handle more. Um, <clears throat> so <clears throat> our problems don't always reflect an immediate result, but maybe are being given to us for future influence. Number four, when things go unexpectedly wrong, we trust and obey because righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. And again, this kind of segues into what we just said, from what we just said. Now, trained seals get an immediately immediate reward, but God is not a seal trainer and we're not trained seals. Um, <clears throat> when we obey God when we suffer for it. We realize sometimes God's sovereign purposes are not always seen immediately. Um, Job is a great example of it, isn't it? We read Job and we have somewhat of an idea. God, he was the most righteous man, God said, who ever lived. And God allowed Satan to test him, not because he hated Job, but because he loved Job and he wanted to show what a righteous man he was. But Job didn't know that. And he went a long time with a lot of difficulties before... That was finally revealed. And then I think of the great faith chapter in Hebrews 11. How about that? There were those who were martyred for their faith in Hebrews chapter 11 without ever seeing the reward this side of glory. They never saw it uh, in this lifetime. But we have faith in the reality of our faith. So when things don't always happen or we think we're not seeing anything, we have faith in the reality of of our faith. And what gets us through is what Jesus said to uh, Peter that my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is, or Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And we can obey him in that. We can be content in that. We have to learn to stop asking the why question and start asking the what do you want me to learn in this. And again, when I've hit tragedies in life, and I've had plenty of them. It would be easy to ask the why, but that's an endless cycle of frustration, isn't it? Why this and why that? Why did this have to be? And why is that the way it is? I can't usually answer those questions. Where I find my comfort is, Lord, what do you want me to learn out of this? And what can I do to glorify you? And if I'm going to ask a how question, how can I grow in my faith? Um, what I love about the Psalms is that they're very comforting and encouraging through trials. Yes, yeah, Psalms? The Psalms. Oh, the Psalms. Yes, right, and right. There are some songs that do ask the why question, but yeah. it always goes back to yeah. God is in control. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. so and they answer the why question. It's like, you, yeah, right. You don't <laughs> ever get the answer. Yeah, right. But you sort of go through this mental process mm -hmm. that God knows our minds more than, better than anyone else. Yeah. He's the one who created yeah. us. And so it's almost um, therapeutic mentally to go through that process and then come back to God. Absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a, a great point, Amber. Yeah, and, and you know, you think of Job again. You know, here he asked why, in a sense, but he never cursed God. He never lost faith. Basically, it was reduced to that he didn't understand, and he wound up usually praising God, even in the midst of not understanding why things were the way they were. Um, and, you know, this is so important for us to remember there's nothing greater than, than understanding the sovereignty of God because there are just things we don't understand. 
I've gone through trials. I'm going through trials that, quite frankly, I don't have an answer for. Do you? Do you have things in your life you don't know why? Why is this happening? Why is it this way? I, I don't know. But we know the one who does know. And we trust in that. Okay, let's go to the second question then. All right, we're going to the second question. So to review, our first question was way back when, are you responding in obedience to God when things go unexpectedly wrong? The second question were to ask when God makes life hard, is am I responding in such a way as to embrace the adversity? Am I responding in such a way as to embrace the adversity? And I'd like someone, if they would read Exodus 5, 6 through 19. shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Man, I mean, we have to put ourselves back into this setting. Can you imagine the shock that must have come over the nation when they thought they were on the precipice of being released, that God had said he heard their prayer, that he was sending a delegation to Pharaoh, that he promised them that they would be in the land of milk and honey, and now this. Um, I mean, this is so far removed. I can imagine there were many who were cursing God at this point. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but knowing human nature to be what it is, I'm sure there were many who thinking, well, God, is, he's really abandoned us. I mean, this is... You know, what's happening? I mean, I, I don't think we often, when we read things like this, get an idea of just how severe, how much more severe, I should say, Pharaoh made life for the Israelites. And um, these Pharaohs, his orders were passed on the chain of command, keep making bricks, basically looked at them as lazy slaves. And then he says that they were to get their own straw. Now, as a labor policy, this was completely irrational. Because the Hebrews couldn't continue to meet their quotas without the resources to get the jobs done, right? Like, you know, he said, that's like saying, you know, we need more concrete from a cement mixer, but I want you to mix it yourself. I'm not going to send the cement trucks anymore. You make the cement. 
And it's like, wait a minute, we don't have the material, we can't do this, okay? Um, and then the harsh conditions of a brick worker back then were hard enough under ordinary circumstances. And I want you to get a flavor for what the Israelites were enduring. Howard Voss, in his great commentary on this, listen to what he says about the bricklayers, the Egyptian, or the Israelite bricklayers. It says, they worked out in the hot Egyptian sun all day, often in temperatures over 100 degrees, driven to optimum production by their taskmasters. They had no hats to protect their heads and wore nothing but a brief kilt or apron on their bodies. A wealthy Egyptian father talked with his son about the condition of their bricklayers. He observed that their kidneys suffer because they are out in the sun with no clothes on, their hands are torn to ribbons by the cruel work, and they have to knead all sorts of muck. Certainly no one stood by to give the workers a drink every few minutes. It does not take much imagination to conclude that the severe rigor imposed on the Hebrews resulted in many of them dying of dehydration, heat prostration, heat stroke, and the like. I mean, we have to really understand what's going on here. I mean, do you see the radical severity of what's going on? You talk about making life hard when you think life is going to go the other way. This is extreme. And, and, you know, for them, just when it looked like that life couldn't get any harder, Pharaoh made life even harder for them. He made it even worse. He had the foreman of the sons of Israel beaten for not meeting the quotas when he had no means by which to do so. And when they protested, Pharaoh became more enraged and lashed out at them for being lazy. He scorned their request to go and sacrifice to the Lord. Instead, he said, work harder, no straw, and meet the quotas. You think you have a nightmare, boss? Aren't you glad you weren't back in those days? <laughs> now, the hardness, I think, of, of Pharaoh kind of reminds us that we live in a fallen world, don't we? I mean, we definitely know that. And I love what the Bible tells us in Job 5.7, that as sparks fly upward, so a man is born for trouble. Um, it's, it's just a given thing. And I think this explains why Christians certainly are often persecuted. Remember what Jesus told the disciples? He said to expect mistreatment. He said, you will be hated by all on account of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved, Matthew 10, 22. And sometimes persecution takes the form of brutal violence. And you know, all the violence that we've seen in this presidential election, which really shows you how divided this country is. And, and I say without apology that when I look at the left, I think this is a precursor of what's coming to the church Sunday. Because I think the church is lumped in with um, everything that they don't stand for. And we see that violence is often promoted. Um, and we know that Christians have been martyred in every age. There are many that will die today because of their faith. Somewhere. They're going to embrace the ultimate adversity. They're going to give their lives for Christ. But typically for us, yet, persecution is felt in more subtle ways. Yes? The most recent statistic I read was one Christian will die every six minutes. Yeah, that's, that's staggering when you think about it. One Christian every six minutes, yeah. I think I heard another one too, Sabrina, like 190,000 Christians were persecuted last year or killed. You know, think of that, 190,000. 
but one every six minutes. I mean, that's... So how many will have died by the end of this class? Um, for us, typically, yet, we're feeling persecution in more subtle ways, such as prayer being taken out of school, biblical morals and values being scorned. Um, if you went into secu- most secular universities today and wanted to t- teach creationism, they would run you out on a rail. And I think the most dangerous threat to America today, next to ISIS, is the college campus. That's the biggest threat that we face because of the brainwashing that's going on in so many of these secular universities. Um, And I think that's something we're going to have to look at hard or it's going to catch up with us. It already has. The church is slammed by the media. Believers are mocked and trivialized in the workplace. And what are we to do? When we find ourselves facing adversity, we're to embrace it. In Ecclesiastes 3, time, three five, Solomon says that there is a time to embrace. And we have to ask, why should we embrace adversity? Why should we do that? Um, <clears throat> we should embrace it because in times of adversity, others can see God in us and God will steer others through his sovereign will. When we embrace adversity, the Lord gives us an opportunity to manifest his character through us. And I think one of the greatest examples of this is in the book of Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. When Daniel was confronted by Nebuchadnezzar and he was told that he had to eat things that didn't go along with the dietary restrictions of the Jewish law, what did he do? He... he, he Compromised, he went along as far as he could, but he embraced the adversity. And under even kings such as Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius, we see that Daniel lived a godly life and it was recognized by these kings. He found great favor from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had to be one of the most wicked kings that ever lived. And Darius, remember the Persian king, wasn't far behind him, but he found great favor. So he embraced adversity, and in the midst of it, he showed Christ. Um, and that's what we're to do. We, what we have to offer in times like this is character. And you know what? When adversity comes and we embrace it, we show the wisdom of God, the discernment, the honesty, the integrity, uh, the compassion, the love. When we act differently than the world, we have an opportunity to show others what they would never see if they were not around Christians. And we can show them the difference between those things that are shallow versus those things that are meaningful. We can show them the difference between those things that are worthless and those things that are worth much. And the things that are of temporal value versus the things that are of eternal value. You know, we have a great opportunity. So... Listen carefully. When we embrace Christ and his eternal truth, we embrace the cross. Uh, This is what we're to do. And and we have to understand that adversity is necessary in the Christian life. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23 and 24, when he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. 
goes against everything the world teaches, doesn't it? So the question we have is, can we trust the sovereignty of God to work to our advantage, even in the midst of adversity? When we get this settled in our own life, we can help others with this. And these are the questions that we're to ask them. And the answer to that, of course, is yes, because we're going to constantly face circumstances that are unfair, unfriendly, undeserved, unexpected. And parents with kids, too. You know, the, one of the things we tried to teach our children early is that life is not fair. Amen? Life is not fair. Never going to be, never has been. But we can shine for the Lord in spite of that. So, see advantages in adversity. Let me give you five advantages that come to us when we embrace adversity. Five things that come to us when we embrace adversity. Because we always want to get practical, and these are things you can help your, those you counsel to see. First of all, adversity provides greater opportunity to glorify God. Adversity provides greater opportunity to glorify God. Again, I think of Paul in Philippians 1.12, where he said that his circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. I mean, that's amazing that Paul is praising God, that he's chained to the praetorian guard... And that's a great way to look at life, that life is not random, it's God-directed. I think of John on the island of Patmos. Remember, he was exiled when he wrote Revelation. And then the story of John Bunyan in prison, and what did he write in prison? Does anybody know what John Bunyan wrote? Pilgrim's Progress. Right, Pilgrim's Progress, Absolutely. So here's the thing, don't look first to get out of trouble, look first to see what God is doing in the midst of trouble. You know, we want to make our one phone call first, don't we, when we're in trouble? Hey, wait a minute here, nope, nope, nope. We want to get out of trouble. When we're in trouble, we want to get out of it. That's our natural instinct. But better, instead of looking to get out of it, look to see what God is doing in the midst of it. Because that may be an orchestrated trouble for you. That may be a trouble that God has engineered into your life for your benefit. And remember that in the midst of trouble, God is working all things together for good, right? To those that love him, to those that are called according to his purpose. So the prayer isn't to get me out of the fire, but help me through the fire. Exactly, help me through the fire. What is God doing in the fire? The second thing that embracing adversity does for us, it promotes spiritual maturity. It promotes spiritual maturity. Now, spiritual growth is a painful thing. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> ah, that really hurts. But it's so necessary. And, and I want to tell you that most of our growth comes out of adversity. Most of our great spiritual growth comes out of the crucible of suffering and difficulty and trials. Uh, there was a sign on a church years ago. I'm not big on signs in front of churches because I think it's a little trite. You know? I just don't like trite little things. But this sign did catch my attention, and it said, smooth seas never made a skillful mariner, you know, and that just stuck with me all these years, and I think that's so true in the Christian life. Um, you know, we are skillful Christians when we go through the rough seas. That's what really builds our ability to handle adversity, um, and adversity can make us better if we refuse to let it make us bitter. It can make us better if we don't get bitter. 
Pastor Erla put a big on signs either, but the song just the yeah. last week, mm -hmm. sign was literally broken. It says, sign broken, message inside. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. <clears throat> that's good. Well, that's one way to get people in the church, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've often said I would love to get a sign out here that's like one of those um, ticker tape signs, you know, where they go, because I think it shows the church is alive. You can advertise things and put things up there. But so far that hasn't happened. So it's on my wish list. But it's, you know, I'm sure we have other things that would be ahead of that. But. So remember that God doesn't validate his plans for us by making everything easy. That's never going to happen. He doesn't keep illness away or failure away, heartache away. Uh, but he gives us these almost as gifts to keep us strong. And he realizes that this is how we grow. This is how we grow. Um, number three, third advantage to embracing adversity. Adversity magnifies our integrity. Adversity magnifies our integrity. The reason for this is because the integrity, the reality of our faith is seen much better in times of adversity. I realize how faithless I am at times. Do any of you ever feel that conviction in your heart? Things get tough and I think, you know what, I, I didn't handle that well. Didn't handle that well. I just got a call from a pastor, a dear friend of mine, who had gone through a serious illness, got better, was fine, and he was lamenting to me almost in tears. He said, I didn't handle it well at all. He said, I was a horrible testimony to our church. He said, I wasn't walking by faith. I didn't practice what I preached. And, you know, we prayed together. But you know what? We're all fellow strugglers. I mean, I never want to condemn because I failed at that too. Um, but you know what? When we have adversity, our integrity is manifested because it reveals our character. Um, many say that, well, my situation made me that way, or I'm angry or I'm bitter because of my situation. And, you know, if it wasn't for this, I'd be happy, or I'd be better, or I'd be rich, or I'd be whatever. Listen, our situations don't make us what we are, okay? That's a lie out of the pits of hell. Our situations don't make us what we are. They simply reveal who we are. They reveal who we are. They don't make us what we are. And again, Job is a great example. After suffering the calamities, his wife said, do you still hold fast to your what? Your integrity? That's what, remember Job's wife? She lost it. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die! Job's wife said, let's just get this over with. And Job said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Man, I love that verse. I have quoted that verse so much in my life at times. So when you're in adversity, trust God. Demonstrate the reality of your faith in Christ before others. Listen, we shine the brightest when sometimes we're under the most difficult circumstances. And, you know, isn't it wonderful when you see Christians? Uh, I mentioned this before. I know praise team. We prayed for a dear, dear brother of mine, Joseph Smith from Lakeside, who had cancer. He just passed away last week. Um, his funeral memorial services this coming week and I'll be going to that but I never saw a man with greater integrity and faith as he ended his life than this man I've never seen a Christian in my life up to this point finish as well as he did had lunch with him probably four or five weeks ago we had a lunch Gail and I went over 
we knew it would probably be the last time we saw him. He was weak. He was the most content, peaceful, happy, settled man I've ever seen. In fact, if you didn't know that he had cancer, you would have never known it through the whole afternoon that we spent with him. And, you know, he was set in the Lord, was in a lot of pain. And I was envious. I thought, Lord, I hope I have that kind of strength. Because I haven't always had that kind of strength. And I would pray that I, I hope I could finish like that. I hope that that would be, you know, somebody to emulate. Number four, <clears throat> adversity forces us to depend upon the Lord. That's another good thing. Adversity forces us to depend upon the Lord. When we're in trouble, we get a renewed sense of the presence of God, don't we? Like when people are about to face a tragedy, I remember I was in a very bad automobile accident with a, with a I was in my 20s at the time with a friend of mine and he was driving and I was a passenger and he ran a stop sign. He just, and I remember just seeing headlights, just all I saw was headlights, and the next thing I know, I was blacked out. But the thing I remember is, at the last second, he cried out, Oh, God! Oh, God. When we're in trouble, we have a tendency to, to have the sense of God when we're in trouble. Um, if you were stranded in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a raft, I bet you'd be thinking about God a whole lot. And wondering if you had shark repellent in any of your survival kit. But it, it's true. Um, problems make us dependent upon him. I mean, there are times when life knocks us to our knees and we have nowhere to look but up. And I know in ministry, many times I have been in places where I have prayed to the Lord, this is too big for me. This is beyond my pale of influence, of ability, of understanding. And you know, there's something that's very comforting about that when you know that you're to the end of yourself. I don't know if you, any of you have ever been there, but it's the irony of this is it's very comforting when you come to the end of yourself. You know, it's almost like being in a hurricane and then coming into the eye of the storm where it's perfectly calm and it's like Christ is there, you know. And when you stay in that place... You know, life is going around us like this, you know. But we're, because you realize that, you know what, I'm totally dependent on God for this situation, and, and there's nothing I can do. And it's amazing how God works in times like that, and how much more sensitive we are to how he is working in our lives. We realize our frailty, don't we? We realize our false bravado, and man, do we have that. That goes away. We realize how much we are not self-sufficient. And I love what David says in Psalm 63.8. He says, my soul clings to thee, thy right hand upholds me. Lord, my soul clings to thee. I mean, David understood trouble. And, and that's where we go when we're in adversity. It makes us more dependent on God, and that's a great place to be. That's where the Lord wants us. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that amazing in the same verse? It says that we cling to, but he is the one holding Yes, us. amen. That's a great analogy. Yeah, we cling, but he holds us up. Yeah, just like clinging onto a child. You know, they cling on to you, but you're holding them up. 
you know, you, you know, and God's got us in the palm of his hand. And that's a great place to be. And then the last one, we embrace adversity because adversity prepares our hearts for ministry. Adversity prepares our hearts for ministry. One thing about adversity is it softens and equips your heart to help others through their own adversities. Years ago, when I started ministry, I have always been very blessed to have pretty good health. And, you know, I got to tell you that, I hate to admit this, but I would go to the hospital and I would visit, you know, people that were very, very ill, um, a couple who passed away, and, and I would pray with them, and I, my heart went out to them, but I really couldn't relate to them. I mean, I just, I could, but I couldn't, if you know what I mean, because I had always been very, fairly athletic and not really had too much by God's grace. So, until God put me through some serious medical issues later in life. And it's amazing how that changed my perspective when I make hospital visits now. I mean, I have more compassion and empathy and just an understanding because I've been there. Um, and, you know, I think of what the writer of the Hebrew says, that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. You know, and, and how comforting that is. And one of the great things is, is it softens our heart for ministry. As we go through adversity, we are in a much better position to help others, aren't we? I mean, isn't it wonderful to hear, you know what, I've been through that. Let me help you with this. I've been there. There's comfort there. Um, it equips us to help others. And remember what the scripture says, that God comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Pretty straightforward. Yes. Thank you. So think of it this way. The adversity that you're suffering through right now may be the very strength that you'll gain to help someone else through the very same thing. Or something very similar. God may be putting you through the crucible of adversity to help others. Sometimes life, we suffer, and it's not really about us. It's about what God's doing in us to help somebody else. You know, we're very independent, me-focused Christians in America, aren't we? Like, everything's about me. But, you know, God puts things in our lives that may not necessarily be about us. It may be for the benefit of somebody else. Um, and I'm sure the Lord put me through that crisis because he wanted me to be better equipped to really shepherd those who were ill. So whether it's illness, financial crisis, family trials, let the things work to your advantage in God's glory. You know, God's using it. God does not waste our suffering. God does not waste our adversity. He doesn't waste our trials. It's not like God falls asleep and goes, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was going to happen. He knows, and he uses it. Everything that happens, he uses for us. So you can embrace adversity knowing that you're under the umbrella of a, of a sovereign God, that we have, we have a sovereign God. So these are things, um, again, to help you in counseling. And the one thing I want to note before we close here is that you'll notice that one of the greatest ways to counsel is to follow the master counselor, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who would often counsel by responding to 
a question or a statement with another question, right? So, if you are with a brother or sister in Christ, and they come up to you, and they are to say, oh, man, life is in the pits, and man, I can't believe this, and I'm going through all of this, rather than just sitting them down and, and giving the pat answer, well, you know, God's in this holy heaven, and you're going to be fine, and ask these questions. Ask these questions. Because then what you do is you put the onus of responsibility back onto the counselee and you get them to think through, yeah, where am I before the Lord with these things? Where am I? And that's always a good thing. So, you know, these things can really help you. And it changes our perspective. Um, This is one of the toughest areas, I think, to grow in as a Christian. Uh, I think the hardest thing for Christians to master is truly biblical forgiveness. That's number one, in my opinion. The second thing would be how to handle life when God makes it hard, or when life is hard. Um, Because we are sinners by nature, and we have this propensity to default back to what feels right in the flesh, right? Like if somebody offends us long enough, you know, the mouth is going to (laughs) speak... Or anger may come out because that's normal. That's what we do in the flesh. But we have to fight that and say, no, there's a better way. There's a better way to respond. There's a better way to live life. And there is a godly way to handle this that will work for my good ultimately and the glory of God and hopefully for the good of others. So we have two more questions to ask in this series. And we're going to keep going through Exodus chapter 5. So if you want to read ahead... You can read all of Exodus chapter 5, and that'll kind of set the stage. If you can bring your sheets back next week, you know, the, the outlines, because we'll use those. And as you see, I've made the outlines pretty general this time, so you can take your own notes and put in there what you want. Anyway, I hope that's given you some, uh, some practical application for, you know, how we can help people and help ourselves when we're in these situations. Any questions before we close in prayer? Just thinking about watching the news one day after a tornado or a big hurricane and uh, um, see the the silhouette of a 